Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? We good? Okay. That's, that's like a nice pastor way to be like, all right, everyone, be quiet now. <laughs> um, oh, welcome, guys. Hey, uh, before we get started, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to do our second half of podcast in which we're going to talk about words. We're going to talk about Ezra, Nehemiah, Jerusalem, all of this stuff. Um, before we do that, uh, we want to always create space here to point out the hurt uh, that's going on in the world. And we've come out of two very painful weeks of just violence, unnecessary, awful violence. Um, and so what we're going to do is our music's going to play a little bit. And before we preach, before we launch in, um, we just want to create space. And so if this is your first time in a church experience... Um, this isn't a weird thing that we do. This is like when you're just in everyday life and you're like, can we just have a moment of silence uh, for this? The only difference is we're saying we'd like this moment of silence because we believe that God can do things within us in that silence and God moves within us when we actually pause. Because here's the thing. So we've been talking about technology the last two weeks. Our phones, our computers, our car, all of these things can do a great deal. They have a very large capacity. But one of the huge flaws in them is they do not have the capacity to slow down and to hold and to truly let this pain work in us. Because what happens is if we don't resolve this pain, it's just headline after headline after headline. At a certain point, we're just going to want to explode. So we're just going to spend a couple seconds here, just heads bowed, eyes closed. And we're just going to hand this over to God in whatever way that means uh, for you. But really just just pray to God. Maybe it's silence. Maybe it's just holding the, the picture, the news story, whatever it is in your head. Um, but we're just going to create a little bit of space for that right now. So let's all just bow our heads together. So Lord, we, uh, we recognize that in these moments, especially today, as we're going to talk about what words do and what words mean, there are moments like this where words don't really have a place. And so we thank you for the gift of silence. We thank you for the gift of uh, contemplation. We thank you that, um, that you're actively at work, even in the midst of the chaos and the pain. So Lord, bring us forward. Let us be the type of people that want to jump in and act because we recognize that we're called to be your hands and feet, which means that we can sit in silence and we can pray all day long, but we actually have to move. So call us to move. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, so, oh, thank you, Omid. Um, all right, where are we? We are in the middle of our series uh, of deconstruction, or reconstruction. <laughs> Sorry, not deconstruction. We're trying not to deconstruct. Um, I guess that's what it's turned into. All right, so... Uh, we are right here, my fancy iPhone doodle. Um, basically, what we've been talking about, what we talked about last week was just technology and how it shapes our faith and our lives. Uh, and I said I wanted to kind of create a base there. 
Um, so what we talked about was just basically this, this technology of grace that God uses to flip the story and flip the switch, and that with grace, you are fully loved and accepted just the way you are. Um, and then we use that in the form of like technology. And this morning, what I would like to do um, is look at the medium of podcasts, because that's one of our arrows, and I'll be it probably the arrow we need the most help on, but it is an arrow nonetheless, so we're going to talk about it. And what I'd like to talk about is the fact that there are over 5,000 different podcasts that all feature the same thing that we are doing in here this morning, which is called a sermon. There are over 5,000 sermons posted every week through the medium of podcasting, and that's crazy. Because here's the deal. Over 49% of the United States has listened to a podcast at one point, and 44% of them have done it at home, which seems like a weird statistic until you think about the fact that like 21% of the nation was literally just sitting there like old-timey in front of a radio. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a medium that is fastly, fastly growing. And it's so incredible because right now we have access to sermons from all over the globe. So the, the 5,000 I just threw out is just in the U.S. alone. There are more. And so we get to hear from all of these leaders. It's it's, it can enrich our community. It can do so much good in our lives. But here's the deal. You know how podcast works? <laughs> I didn't either, so I looked it up. And it's far too complicated, so I'm going to dumb it down just for my sake. What happens is someone goes into a recording studio or just takes a little recorder or even an iPhone and they speak into it. Your voice then becomes a series of zeros and ones that are recorded and encoded. Then you upload it to a, a place where it can host your file. And then from there, you send it to Apple, you send it to Stitcher, you send it to Spotify, you send it to all of these different places in which you can grab a podcast. And then through the miracle and magic of technology, those zeros and ones come right through your phone and a voice is talking to you. Now, that sounds like magic, <laughs> right? This is what we call state of the art. And I really gave that like pause to if we, we throw that out like this is a state of the art kitchen. This is a state of the art car. This is a state of the art whatever. And that phrase is actually much more powerful than what we're saying. Basically, we're saying this is the bar. Like if you say something is state of the art, it is at the absolute highest of this art form. It's recognizing that all of this technology and everything, there's, there's, a, there's an art to it. There's a specialness to it. And this is the state of it at this very moment. So if this medium is so incredible and it's so fast moving and it's zeros and ones magically poofing back into our voices, that's state of the art. But is the content on this state of the art technology actually state of the art? And what I mean by that is, is the sermon as a technology, as a vehicle, state of the art? That's the question because it is so ingrained in our church culture and just in our culture in general. You have lectures, you have all of this stuff, but this all comes from this idea of a sermon, someone pontificating, someone sharing wisdom, someone growing, but that has not changed in a really long time. And what's interesting, what we'll look at is the way it started was actually much different than the way that we've gotten to today. A sermon comes from the Latin word sermo, which literally means discourse or, get this, conversation. A sermon is a conversation. That means that it doesn't end here. In fact, all I'm doing is priming the pump for conversation as we leave this space. There should be talking about it. What would happen in the ancient church is that one person would get up, because remember, these scrolls, these books were very, very valuable. 
and probably can only have one per town. So you've got someone who's going to stand up, and it wouldn't always be the rabbi. It might just be someone else, and they would read from the text. And then discourse would happen. So people would ask questions, and they would, they would pull it apart, and they would pull each other because they were meeting in groups like a little smaller than this. So there was space for people to go like, ah, I don't get that. Like, what, what is that? What is that? Pull that apart. How, do you, how did we get there? What is that from? What's that referencing? All this stuff. It was a discourse. And somehow, over the years, we've moved from discourse to TED Talk, <laughs> right? Where I impart wisdom, and then we all go home, and we're happy, right? But it just, it, what, what I want to do is reframe the idea of the sermon to just being the starting point. This should be a week-long activity. This should be a, a, a day-long activity, whatever it is. But it should spark conversation. A good, conver a good sermon or a good conversation, we could just call it that, moves people, right? We know this. A good speech moves people. How many halftime speeches have you seen in movies where you're just like, I want to go play basketball now, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the funny thing about that is the players aren't coming out of that locker room going like, you know, 10 minutes in, I wasn't sure about the phrase that he used. Like, they're not pulling apart the speech. They're just going like, yes, let's hit the court and go, right? That's what a good speech does. It causes us to believe. And I truly believe that the sermon is one of the most beautiful art forms out there, and I think it's been lost. It's been lost because when I say the word sermon, many of you are going, is he really going to talk about a sermon for 30 minutes? <laughs> Sermons are exciting. They are, they are dramatic. They are spontaneous. They combine art. They combine uh, history. They combine logic. They combine spirituality. They are this beautiful, wonderful mix and this huge art form that exists that has been long forgotten and replaced with the lecture. See, a sermon is not a lecture. A sermon's goal is to get you to move. A lecture's goal is to get you to learn, and that's awesome. We need those. But a sermon's goal is to move your heart, to move the needle. And the most incredible thing about the vehicle that is the sermon is that it also leaves space for something more than just my words to fill the room. That this is a time we actually get to sit, listen, think about this stuff. But we need spaces where we can pull that apart. And that's why next week, when we start talking about small groups, I'm going to be asking you guys to get involved in these communities because these are the places that we actually get to pull this apart. And it's awesome. I have a small group, um, and, and I am a part of a small group. We host it, my wife and I. And we talk about what we talk about on Sunday there. And a lot of times I go like, oh, I made a lot of mistakes there. <laughs> it's wonderful, right? It's awesome to be able to actually go, I'm really confused by whatever that was. Or I really loved whatever that was. I hope you're saying I really loved a lot of what that was. <laughs> but you're likely confused about some things. And it's good to have other people around you to be able to bounce this stuff off of. So anyway, we're going to talk about... Um, this vehicle that is a sermon, we're going to talk about words. But before we do that, I would love to just uh, pray. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for spaces like this where we get to do this thing called a sermon, where we get to actually talk about the things that matter most and that we get to enter into a conversation um, and that this should be the starting point. So thank you, Lord. Amen. So if we're going to deconstruct and reconstruct, right, which is deconstructing uh, the sermon itself, we need to pull it apart with the building blocks that actually put it together. And those just happen to be words. So, words. Let's talk about words for a good chunk of this sermon. Words create worlds. I just want to throw that out there. I know that sounds weird, but in the Genesis story, when Jesus 
creates, he speaks things, or Jesus creates, well, he was there. Um, when God creates, he speaks things into existence. He says, let there be. The scripture literally says, and God said, let there be X. So from a very, very early on point in the scripture and in our faith, we understand that words matter a whole lot. Here's a classic phrase, sticks and stones break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Okay, so how many remember hearing that for the first time and then like you kind of let it sit in you and then you realize like that adults could be lying to you for the first time in your life. <laughs> right? Like I, I don't think that that's true because, because words just did hurt me. <laughs> so anyway, so we know even from a young age that words have a tremendous amount of power over our lives. That words can lift us up and they can tear us down. That they are so powerful that they can cause people to change their minds. This is the power of words. I have uh, good friends that live in London, and um, his name is uh, David Henderson Williams. It's this beautiful, like, British man, very tall, uh, very proper, just like the most British person you could imagine. That's him. Um, so British, in fact, that he plays tennis with Hugh Grant. <laughs> so he's just like the most British individual in the world. Um, but Hugh Grant, you're telling me, is actually this, like, amazing tennis player. And in their tennis club, Hugh Grant is, like, one of the top players. And David began to notice... Like, why is Hugh Grant, you can't possibly be that blessed, right? You can't be Hugh Grant and that good at tennis. <laughs> so he starts studying Hugh Grant, because David is incredibly competitive. So he's, he's looking at Hugh Grant, and when he plays him, he begins to notice this pattern. Every time Hugh Grant will walk out onto the court, and just picture, I, I wish I could do like a dead-on Hugh Grant impression. I'm not even going to attempt. But just picture him in all of his like charming glory walking onto a court. One, you've got the factor of, oh, that's Hugh Grant, right? I'm about to play tennis with Hugh Grant. This could throw you off a little bit. But on top of that, he would always go to the person and he would say, hey, how do you hold your thumb on the racket? And then the person would answer uh, and the, the match would go on and Hugh would likely win that match. Now, what's interesting is that he would do that over and over and over and over again. And so finally, David, as he's playing him, gets the nerve to ask him, hey, why do you ask everyone that you play with how you put your thumb on the racket? And he said, well, if I ask them where they put their thumb, then they stop thinking about the game and start paying too much attention to their thumb, <laughs> and I can beat them. And I was like, not only is Hugh Grant good at tennis, a great actor, a national treasure, but he's absolutely brilliant, right? Like, that is, that is next-level Jedi stuff. Uh, but you see, words can shift the power dynamic in the room. They can change our attention. They can move us in different directions at different times. And in fact, they can move our lives along. So it's a couple of years ago, um, and I'm living in Hollywood. I'm not married yet. Uh, and my, my uh, roommate, some of you have heard this story before. My roommate gave me a watch. Uh, he had a watch company. It was called WeWood. It was these like wooden watches. They were profoundly ugly. Company did not take off. But I got a free watch. <laughs> and he gives me the watch, and it's too big. And it's one of those watches that has like the links in it. Um, and it was made of wood, so there was like no way that I could like take the links out. So for the first time in my life, I walked into a jewelry store. Uh, actually, I should say this is the second time in my life. The first time in my life was this casual day where we were, uh, Chelsea and I were together, and she just sort of casually pointed over to a jewelry store and was like, do you, do you want to like go take a look at maybe what I would like? And I'm just like throwing that out there, and I was like, <laughs> I know better than to say no to this, so let's go in and let's see what you like. So uh, I had the ring in mind, and it just so happened that uh, it was the same exact ring that my mom had. Like it looked dead on. And so I was like, how cool is that that those two are connecting? How weird is that that those two are connecting? Anyway, so 
I go into the jewelry store, and it's Mother's Day at this jewelry store. And I take off my watch, I give them the watch, and I say, I just need these links taken out. And they go, awesome. And in typical salesman fashion, they go, it's going to take like 30 minutes. Do you want to look at anything else while you're here? <laughs> and I was just like, you know, so the first round, I didn't check the price of said ring. And so this round, I wanted to go, I just need to mentally prepare myself for what this is going to cost. Could, could I just see uh, this ring? She pulls out, first ring she pulls out is the exact same ring uh, that Chelsea looked at, the exact same rings by mom's. And it's a Mother's Day sale. And they gave me the price, and it just so happened that uh, poor Josh actually had that amount in his bank account at that moment. And I blurt forth without even realizing and catching up to myself later. It was as if, like, my words had escaped me, and I was just like, wait, 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 wait. And I said, I'm going to buy that. <laughs> and she looked just as stunned as you are. <laughs> she was like, I was not expecting to make a sale from this kid with a wooden watch, right? Like, so I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to buy that. She's like, are you? Are you sure? As if to say, like, can you afford this? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to buy that. Uh, and so I bought that, and I left the watch in the jewelry store because I completely forgot what I went in there for. Uh, I went to go get a coffee, and then I looked. I, I, I got the coffee, put it down, paid for it, walked away, left the coffee there. <laughs> then I stopped at another place because I called my parents, and, uh, and I realized that I had left my lights on. And so I got back out to my car, and my car battery was dead. And so I had to call Chelsea to come pick me up. And I had the ring on me in my pocket. And I'm going, oh my gosh. So my plan was to wait, like, maybe years, right? This is the, this is the, the, the way of a man. It's like, maybe years from now, I'll use this. And then it just so happened that my parents were coming down two weeks later. And I set up this engagement in two weeks' time. And we made a mad dash to the beach on a really rainy day. And the clouds cleared for just like an hour. And I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. Now, that story is beautiful, lovely, spontaneous, weird, awesome. But the point is the words that I said out loud actually moved my life forward. How many times have you heard a story where someone is going into a new phase of life? It's a new beginning for them. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's just just a, a, a complete character shift, and they begin telling you the story of how they got there with, I just said to myself, or I just, I said, or I wrote this down. Like, for some reason, our psyche, if we say it out loud, write it down, laugh, cry, when it comes out of us, it actually becomes something. In a very real way, the things that we say actually manifest themselves into real deal it has to be expressed to be known. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian authors of all time, uh, has this amazing quote. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not going to get it exactly right. Um, but he says, uh, for true joy to be experienced, it must be shared. Meaning that if you are so happy and you are filled with joy, but you don't tell anyone about that joy, you're really not going to experience the joy. What we put out into the world really, really matters. What we say really matters. In the most Christian thing you could say ever, words actually create worlds. Now, when I told that lady that I was going to buy that ring and the look on her face turned to like, oh my gosh, right? It wasn't just the words that I said, but it was also the words or the way that I aligned the words and the cadence at which I said them, because I blurted that thing out like it was a problem, like there was a fire, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to buy that. 
So the way that we say things actually matters as much as what we say. And this is a very, very important thing when it comes to a good sermon. When you see someone who's actually in control, they know when to stop, they know when to start, they know how to go forward. They do it much better than I do, <laughs> right? So they know what's going on and how to use words. It's the difference between saying, I'm sorry, and oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. The shift there is real. And actually, it's scientific. Our brains actually take in words in this way. Check this quote out. Um, I believe it's the first slide. Nope, let's move on. I must not have it in there. Let's go to this. Here we go. Okay, so this is from University College London's Dr. Scott. Uh, official name. Um, the brain takes speech and separates it into words and melody. The varying intonation in speech reveals mood, gender, and so on. Words are then shunted over to the left temporal lobe for processing, while the melody is channeled to the right side of the brain, a region more stimulated by music. So, our brains function when we hear a sentence and we hear people talking. We take in the words, like the data, and we shove it to the left, which is that logical. And then when we hear the way that people are saying it, we use the creative side of our brains to actually figure out what they mean. What this means is that a sermon is a song. If, if in the way that you want, all of us are communicators in this room. I don't care what you do in your life, you are a communicator and you communicate to people, whether that's via email, whether that's via anything like that. In fact, the world's gravest text message that you could ever send, just that dreaded K sent, <laughs> right? What kind of melody, what kind of song does that send? Even though if it's not said out loud, when you just get that K coming in, you hear dun dun dun, right? Like, like something serious is about to go down. A sermon is a song. If you look at one of the greatest sermons that has ever been preached, which is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream, I invite you to go home and actually watch that video. Because not only is what he's saying so profound, but the rhythm in which he uses his words and the cadence and the starts and the stops, that guy is creating a song right in front of you. And there's a reason it sticks with you. Because it's a song, right? And we're leaning in to the song. So the next question is, we have words and we can put them together and the cadence matters and all of this matters. This is the deconstructive moment. So how do we reconstruct? Where did a sermon actually come from in the first place? It's a very interesting thought, because remember, we start with sermo and discourse and conversation, but where did we get the first instance of someone taking the Bible, reading from the Bible, and then pulling the jewels out of that and expressing what's going on in the room? Because that's really what a sermon is. It's not just reading the scripture, but it's actually pontificating on what's in the scripture itself. So I searched for the very first time this happened, and it so happens that it's in a book called Ezra, and this priest named Ezra gives the first sermon. What we're going to learn a little bit later is that it was one of the worst sermons that's ever been thrown out there, but we have to start somewhere, right? So we have Ezra, but before that, we need to go a little brief history lesson and start from the very, very tip of the top. So we're going to go all the way back down uh, to Moses. And Moses is this man that frees this entire nation of Israel who have been enslaved for generations under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And he brings them out. And now here's the thing. When someone has experienced that level of trauma and pain and heartache, such as slavery, good night, you are now responsible. Moses found himself in the position of being responsible for an entire nation of traumatized individuals. 
Sometimes we just look at this like they're just, oh, we're free and we're good and yee, yee, yee. No, you got a lot of problems in that room, man. <laughs> and Moses is having to deal with all of these different characteristics and all of the, the weight and the baggage that they're carrying and the way that they think they have to live their lives because they've only known slavery. When you meet someone who's gone through great, great hardship, there's always a story of how they either came out of that and it's a long one or they're still in that trauma. This is what I was talking about before. Pain has to work its way through us, and we have to deal with it. Otherwise, we're only going to end up hurting other people because that pain is just going to shoot off into someone else, right? So Moses is tasked with this, and uh, to, to his first act, to get people together, he goes and he gets the word of the Lord, and he tells them their story. And he says to them, here is where you've come from. So we have the scripture um, where he, Moses, there we go. Moses came and told the people all the Lord's words and all the case laws. All the people answered in unison. Everything that the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down the Lord's words. So not only do we have the first instance of scripture writing in the Bible, but we have the first time where someone stands up and publicly reads the scripture. And that changes the vibe in that whole nation. Suddenly they realize, you know what? It's not just about me. It's about all of us and we're free. And we have a trajectory. We're in good hands. We know where we're going. So from Moses, then we go to Joshua. And Joshua is the guy underneath Moses. He, he's the one who eventually leads everyone into the promised land. And he realizes, oh, so Moses doesn't get people into the promised land. They kind of have this thing with these big soldiers. They get scared, and then God goes like, guess what? 40 years, like, figure it out. <laughs> so 40 years, figure it out. After that, Joshua comes on the scene, and he takes one from his mentor's page because they're about to enter into a new season of life. And so he says, we need to revisit the story. So he reads uh, the story to them. Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written, the book of the laws. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. This means that they sat and they listened to Genesis all the way, the first five books of the Bible they listened to. That's crazy town. I couldn't do, imagine if I started reading in Deuteronomy right now, you'd be like, I'm out of here, <laughs> right? They sat and they listened to their story because they had to be reminded of this is where we came from. And we're coming into a new kind of freedom. And so I want to remind you that there is something greater at work and this God is leading us forward. So unfortunately, everything looks like it's on a fine trajectory. But unfortunately, after Joshua dies, we fall off the scripture reading path. And in fact, the scripture says for generations, there were generations that did not know that history and there were generations that did not know what the Lord had done for them. Along comes hipster king Josiah. And I say hipster king Josiah because he was literally going through old records, which you just picture like a guy in a record store, just like all oh, this gem. And he finds <laughs> Torah. He actually finds the original written word. And actually, it's one of his servants that finds it, and he brings it to him. And when they read it, this happens. It says, Josiah, when the king heard what was written in the book, God's revelation, he ripped his robes in dismay. And then he called for Hilkiah the priest. That's a name. Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah. Well, go on and on and on. Anyway, the whole thing is, when he finds this, he realizes, oh, my gosh, we've been missing out for so long. And then what he says to the, everyone in the temple, which is this is the first time the temple's been created, he says, we need this stuff in the temple. So read this aloud in the temple every time you come. 
And they do that for generations. And this actually looks like it was going to take this great turn. When they talk about Josiah in the scriptures, this king, they say a greater king has never lived. I mean, it's incredible. Like what he did with the scriptures in the temple was magnificent. But as is the story of the Israelites, tragedy is always around the corner. What happens is the Babylonians come in and they shred that temple brick from brick and they exile the Jewish people and the Jewish people have to go live in Babylon somewhere else. They're exiled. They're pushed out of their land, right? And so like, let's pause there because that sounds like just a bit of history. Imagine yourself in that position. The temple life has been going really, really well for so long and all of a sudden that temple gets ripped to shreds. In their belief, this is where God dwelled. This is where God lived. This is where you went to receive God. And not only have you been displaced out of your home, but the center of your faith and this God that you believed was leading you into something greater is completely gone. The real question that comes up when something like this happens is, God, where are you? All of a sudden, none of this makes sense. I'm exiled. Where are you? This is the story we find ourselves in so often right now. Something awful goes down. And in all honesty, all we want to ask is, God, where were you when that went down? This is what these people are feeling right now. And 50 years goes by and they sit in that tension. 50 years. That means some people pass away. That means some people never get to see this come to fruition. But 50 years later, there's a king named Cyrus, and he actually is this stand-up guy, and he comes in and he says, hey, you guys can come back. In fact, anyone who wants to come back, I will pay for you to come back. In essence, like God, he says, God is literally asking me to do this, and I'm going to do this because I think what happened to you guys was awful. So come back, and in fact, I'm going to help you rebuild the temple. Whatever you need, you can have. And so what, and as a result, not all of the Jewish people end up going back, but about 50,000 people end up going back. And this is where we meet the three characters that we're going to talk about the most. And those characters are Zerubbabel, which means planted in Babel. So that essentially means this guy was from Babel. But Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Try saying that ten times fast. <laughs> These three men are charged with three very specific tasks. And this, this is perfect for our story of reconstruction because they are literally sent to go and rebuild not just the temple, but the entire way of life for these people. They're trying to rebuild what's been tore down. And what we're going to find out is that they do it the wrong way. They rebuild because they're trying to get exactly what they had before. What they didn't understand is that through 50 years of trauma, heartache, pain, things have changed. So Zerubbabel is the one who's charged with building the temple, and he gets there, and he gets all these people in line. And you have to remember, these people have been in exile for years and years and years. And so when they come back, the people who have been there are not exactly excited that 50,000 people have all of a sudden shown up in their space. So they deal with all sorts of tension with the locals, and they finally get their temple rebuilt. And here's what's supposed to happen. And what's supposed to happen is the glory of God is supposed to shine all around. It's supposed to be this magnificent, like, ah, moment. Does not happen. Nothing happens. In fact, the people, the elders in the group who had seen the temple before bemoaned and said, like, oh, he didn't get it right, you know, curmudgeonly, like, no, it's not the way it was. And then you have Nehemiah who strolls in and says, I want to rebuild the city's walls. Now, no one asked Nehemiah to do this. God did not ask Nehemiah to do this. In fact, the prophet said when they go back, this is a city with no walls. 
But Nehemiah walks in and says, we need walls. We need protection. So they build this massive wall around the city. And what ends up happening is on the other side of the wall, all of these, this like black market emerges because they realize we can sell whatever we want if we're outside of the city gates. <laughs> so this market goes all the way along the wall. And the wall is not known for protection. The wall is known for where you can buy the things that you can't buy in the light of day. Right? So you've now got two tragic missteps and two fails on your hand. And we're coming to the third fail, which is our boy Ezra. Poor Ezra. Ezra is a priest. He's trained in Torah. And the king says to him, I want you to come back here and I want you to teach in the temple and I want you to teach the way it used to be. Right? And Ezra is that kind of guy. He's like, yes, I will do that. And he comes in and he sees a key problem. And that problem is that over the years in which they've been back and they've rebuilt the temple, some of the people that came out of exile back in have now married some of the locals and some of the people that like were there anyway. And they've intermixed. And Ezra is not about this. And he decides haphazardly to create what we now call the sermon. And here's what he does. He reads a section of Torah, which is probably just plucked, handpicked to say to these people, you shouldn't be together. And he reads it to them, and then he says this. He says, Ezra the priest stood up and spoke, you've broken trust, you've married foreign wives, you've piled guilt on Israel, now make your confession to God, the God of your ancestors, and do what he wants you to do. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. The whole congregation responded with a shout, yes, we'll do it just the way you said. Now, what ends up happening is it doesn't happen just the way you said. It, get, it causes a lot of tension and a lot of problems. And so when we get to the end of the books, Ezra and Nehemiah, we find a city that cannot be rebuilt because everything is fighting against it. What they tried to do was take the same principles from before and rebuild it exactly the same way. And folks, that's like knocking down an ugly strip mall and building it back the same way. Some of the stuff that we deconstruct needs to be deconstructed, but it has to be rebuilt with new, fresh materials, with other things. Because if you come with the same hurt and pain, it's all just going to go happen again. So really interesting in the Bible, once we end right there, we come to the books of wisdom, which are all about the heart. It's as if the Bible is screaming at you like, you have to actually rebuild it here before you can do anything over here. So the first sermon is about divorce. That's a bummer. Um, but what does Jesus do with it? So for years and years and years, what happened there is Ezra created this oral tradition of Torah, and then here's what I think about the Torah. Torah and now, bringing it into context, saying like this verse clearly states this, so right now you guys should recognize that and clearly do this, right? That is the idea and the heart of a sermon. And so this catches on and it goes for years and years and years. Now, if that was the first sermon ever recorded, what's the first sermon Jesus ever spoke? Very, very interesting. Jesus comes to his hometown and he gets into the temple and he reads this. He says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was as his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll, the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. So this is the book of Isaiah as we would read it. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus took the Torah and now, but he now takes one of the prophets and he uses it the same way Ezra used the book to keep people out and keep people separate. He turns to the one scripture where it proclaims that this Messiah that's going to come, this Christ, is there for the poor and the people that would be on the outside in the first place. And there's something very, very key to notice here. That was the fire that was brewing in Jesus's heart. And just on a very historical level, you have to realize that this guy grew up on the outside. His parents had him out of wedlock. There was some real social weirdness going on, and he was probably instantly cast aside. Not only that, but his father's a blue-collar worker, and he's a blue-collar worker. There's just there's social status. There's stuff going on. Jesus is seeing life from the outside, and that's what he's bearing witness to, and that is the fire that's burning within his bones that has to come out, that has to get out. So the first sermon he speaks. Now, this is hilarious. Right after that sermon, they try and throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so, like, for, like, that's good news for a pastor, because, you know, I've never been, like, physically assaulted after a sermon. Um, but the question that brings up is if that's what Jesus is bringing to the table and he's saying, hey, guys, no, 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 it's, it's this, and I'm here for the poor, and I'm here for the oppressed, and I'm here for the people that aren't in this temple right now. And that's his fire. What is the fire that we are bearing witness to? That we have seen, that we can't help but keep in that has to come out. Because like it or not, we are all speaking our own sermons in our daily lives. And the way in which we're crafting that song truly matters if we want to move this message of Christ for all people forward. We have to figure out better ways of speaking about this stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when we talk about God, mostly when we're talking about God, we're talking about him like he's out of the room. Like he isn't right here amongst us and in our presence. When I made that phone call to my parents after I bought uh, the ring, I called my dad first. He was, on his, he was on his bike and he's going like up a mountain at that time. And so he's like out of breath and I just hear him like, <gasps> and I'm like, dad, can you, can you hear me? He's like, well, a little bit. Just like went up the hill and I'm like in a Starbucks yelling at him like, I think I bought a ring. Like, and he's, he stops his bike, stops immediately, just pulls it over the side and you hear this like, <coughs> like he's just chucked it. <laughs> And, and he says, what? And I go, I go, yeah, I, I just bought this, this ring. And, and, I, and I'm going to ask uh, Chelsea to marry me. And he, he, he just kind of paused and just said, man, Josh, that's awesome. We'd love Chelsea. And I think you really listen to God. Now, in that moment, I kind of experienced probably the best sermon I've ever heard. You really listen to God. What my dad knew that I didn't know at that point and what that I had been listening was that God was in that all the time. That he was in the room. <laughs> to quote Hamilton, he was in the room where it happened. <laughs> right? <laughs> he was there. The best sermons that we can speak are those in our daily lives where we don't forget that God is in the room. We don't forget that God is right here and that he's constantly at work. If we can really, really, truly trust that, I think the way that we communicate is going to change. And I think this world can actually change. And we really need a change, guys. 
It's getting so crazy. So may we be the type of people that bear witness, create a fire in our bones, and that we express and we give out. And may that fire be lots and lots of love. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm, uh, I'm so struck with the fact that um, we have so little time like this in our, in our weekly schedule, in our lives, where we get to contemplate this. But Lord, I, I pray that we would open up a conversation this week um, and that we'd be able to uh, just get to know you better through those around us. Amen.